In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Ann Simpson, the Interim Managing Investment Director, Board Governance and Sustainability at CalPERS. CalPERS is the largest pension fund in the U.S., and Anne is responsible for strategic sustainability initiatives across its $400 billion of assets under management. Anne also serves on the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission's Investor Advisory Committee, and she speaks regularly on climate change as a systemic risk. In 2019, Anne was recognized by Time Magazine as one of 15 women globally leading the fight on climate change. Today, we will discuss how CalPERS views climate change as a systemic risk, as well as Anne's instrumental role in Climate Action 100+, a global investor alliance of over $35 trillion of assets. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Anne. Well, thank you, Amelia. And I love the title of this, the ESG Beat, as in these tough times, the beat goes on. That's right. I'm glad you're keeping the flag flying for all this good work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna, and um, thank you for sharing your time with us today. So this ESG beat will, of course, focus on CalPERS engagement with issuers, uh, but specifically on climate change risk. Um, Before we get started with that, I wanted to see if you could briefly describe for our audience CalPERS size and scope, and then your role um, at CalPERS. Right. Yes. No, I'd be glad to. The important thing about CalPERS is we're in the um, supersize category. Uh, CalPERS <laughs> is one of the 10 largest asset owners in the world. We have investment portfolios that total well beyond $400 billion. And we invest that money for almost 2 million people in the state of California. All the public servants, think about the firefighters, Think about the people in the libraries, the healthcare system, universities, janitors, even judges. Um, these hardworking people of California are those who we serve. So it's important to know that campus is very big. Uh, because that means when you're looking at an issue like climate change, we have nowhere to hide. We only look at a piece of everything, otherwise known as a universal owner. The other important thing about campus is the long-term investment horizon that we have because we're a pension fund. So think about the youngest person joining CalPERS today. Let's say they're 18 years old. When they retire uh, and they reach the end of their you know, natural life and their dependents also uh, have passed along, you're really looking at an investment horizon of the best part of a century. Now, again, if you're looking at an issue, any systemic issue like climate change, it matters to us because we're so big and it also matters because we're so long term. And it, that is what sets the stage for us tackling this, uh, this issue, not just as a risk, but also as an opportunity, because in the energy transition, uh, the economy is going to look very different and that brings a lot of opportunity. It's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> well, thank you for pointing out that um, you know there, there's risk certainly, but there's also opportunity, and I'm excited to um, delve into that with you. But before that, can you uh, tell our audience about your role at Calpers, and then about Calpers' approach to ESG more broadly? 
Mm, no, I'd be glad to. So <clears throat> I work in the Chief Executive's office. Our Chief Executive Officer, Marty Frost, oversees uh, the investment office, the pension system, and also the second biggest health system in the United States. So she has quite a day job. Uh, my title is that I'm the Managing Investment Director for Board Governance and Sustainability. So that's got two sides to it. One is the CALTAS board is a stakeholder board. It represents uh, trustees who are elected by our beneficiaries or appointed by representatives of the state of California and the taxpayers. So our body, the governing body for CALPAS, and my role is in uh, supporting CALPAS strategy around issues that are important for our board. Climate change is a good example of that, but our board is also deeply committed on issues like um, diversity and inclusion, uh, responsible contracting, and a wide range of other things. The other side of my job is uh, in the investment office, where I'm responsible for um, overseeing our sustainable investment strategy. So what does that mean? If you're as big as we are and CalPERS as long-term as we have to be, what that really raised a question for us after the last but one financial crisis was uh, big questions about sustainability from a financial point of view. Uh, that's number one for a pension fund. We're taking care of people in their old age and retirement security and healthcare. These are very basic social and human rights that everyone needs to have uh, taken care of. And CalPERS has got that important uh, responsibility. So we looked at the whole issue of sustainability by thinking about the different forms of capital that are needed to create long-term value. Now, we need to create long-term investment value because for every dollar that we pay out to our members, almost 60 cents of every dollar that we pay out comes from investment returns. So every person in California who pays taxes and every person who's relying on CalPERS as a pension fund uh, needs our investment strategy to be successful over the long term. So, and and the, the numbers are not small. Uh, at the moment, every year, we pay out $25 billion in cash every single year in benefits to our members. So not hitting that number is a very, is a very serious thing. So CALPA's uh, approach to sustainability rests on this idea that there are three forms of capital, not one, but three. The first one is familiar to anyone thinking about investment, and it's financial capital. This is where we gather in the contributions from our members uh, and from our employers, and we invest that money in public and private markets, in debt and in equity. So we have a concern with sustainability, which comes out of that financial capital and our stewardship. But we also know that money on its own doesn't produce anything. Companies are successful when they're able to take financial capital and manage it alongside human capital and also physical capital. So human capital is a fancy word for people, but it's a way of thinking about people as assets rather than as costs or burdens on the balance sheet. So it's the workforce, it's the supply line, the communities, the customers, 
So by understanding how important human capital is to company success, it gives us a natural interest and concern with human capital management and what companies are reporting and how they're treating people. Um, the third form of capital is physical capital. And this is really the whole environmental agenda. And whether we're looking at issues like climate change or drought or access to uh, natural resources, which include water, then if we don't understand that part of a company's business, we're really missing a big part of both the risk and the opportunity. So when we built out our first sustainable investment strategy, it was resting on this idea that investment is about more than money. And that being a steward of capital means being a steward of financial capital, human capital, and physical capital. So we don't tend to fly under the flag of ESG, because ESG has got a letter missing. From an investor point of view, the missing letter is the letter F for finance. So we have framed our sustainability strategy on these three forms of capital, which gives us a more holistic approach to investment. That's a very helpful framing. And uh, moving uh, to climate risk, Kelpers has categorized that risk uh, also in a very helpful way uh, and has divided it into two categories of risk, transition risks and physical risks. Can you give us concrete examples of uh, things that would fall under each of these types of risks? No, absolutely. Uh, and I have to say that the idea of dividing risk in that way was not Kalpa's idea. It came out of the very wonderful Mark Carney uh, when he was chairing the Financial Stability Board. And as many, many of the listeners will know, um, was, he's a Canadian who was the governor of the Bank of England. And while he was in that role, the uh, Financial Stability Board commissioned a task force to look at climate-related financial disclosure. And the framework that they gave uh, divided risk into these two categories, transition risk and physical risk. So transition obviously means change. So the question is, we look at a company and think about where they are now, and where they need to get to, if we're going to hit a target of holding global warming to 1.5 degrees. Bear in mind we've already warmed up by one degree. So we don't have a lot of headway, you know, headroom for, for increasing temperature. Typically, we will have to cut greenhouse gas emissions in our portfolio by between 80 and 90% from now until the year 2050. So if you're an oil company, let's say, or a big utility in the energy sector, you're going to have to get your business from where you are now over this period of time by 2050 to a point where there's net zero emissions. Now, as you find that the markets for your products are changing, that can cause a huge amount of financial stress on the company. And we've already seen um, transition failure. Uh, PG&E, local utility in uh, California is an example of that, where, you know, lack of resilience and preparation for climate risk has, you know, led the company into bankruptcy. Um, we also saw the largest uh, privately uh, owned and listed coal company, Peabody Coal, go into bankruptcy. And these are companies that have not adjusted their business model to take account of the fact that the, the economy around them is changing. And it's because uh, customers, 
markets, regulators, even employees expect companies to bring their greenhouse gas emissions down. So that's transition risk. If companies don't get this right, they're going to find their access to capital is going to become a problem. We've seen banks cancelling, uh, they're you know, just shutting down their willingness to finance certain uh, business like coal, for example. Uh, and it will also be a result of regulatory pressure. You will even find issues like the insurance industry, the cost of insuring properties um, is going to put financial pressure. So this is transition risk. It's sort of the whole business case um, is up for grabs about how does a company currently pulching out an enormous amount of greenhouse gas, how does that company transition its business over this period of time to have net zero emissions? The other kind of risk, you can leave it is different altogether and it's where climate risk comes and hits you um, in a physical way. So think about what's going on in California at the moment. You can have a business with net zero emissions. You can be a responsible employer. You can be doing all the right things on energy efficiency and water management and community relations. But extreme heat, wildfires, um, sea level rise, these are going to impose physical risks on your business. And if you look at any, uh, you know, big countries like the United States or Australia or island nations, you'll find that property and assets tend to be on the coast or on, uh, on the banks of rivers. And this is as much as anything because of transport over time. But also because people like to live in the water. So if you're a company which has got assets at sea level or close to sea level, that what is happening now and what is predicted to increase and to be exacerbated in the process of global warming, you've got physical risk. And the way we've started looking at that is by building out in our portfolio of holdings what we're calling zip code risk. In other words, where something is really matters. So looking at, for example, we're working with what was called Woods Hole until recently. They've changed their name to Woods Well. I'm not sure why being a well rather than a hole matters, but there you go. But they are the meteorological center for the United States. And working with one of our managers, Wellington Investment Management, we've um, helped to build out a framework for physical risk mapping, this zip code risk. Uh, it's all location, 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 even on climate change. Because then the question is, how is that risk going to be mitigated? Is it an asset that can be moved? Uh, probably not, uh, in many cases. In which case, what does it look like to insure that asset? What does it look like at the financial value of that asset? So whether it's transition risk or whether it's physical risk, you're going to find some companies will be exposed to both. But for, a, you know, for an investor like CalPERS, we can't hide from either of those risks. You know, we're often asked to... Um, uh, not often, but we do and have been asked to divest our shares in fossil fuel companies, for example. Um, and we argue back on that. The question is not to try to hide from the emissions by not holding the shares in fossil fuel companies. The challenge is actually to get these emissions down and to get these companies into transition mode, because even if we don't own those companies, we're going to be exposed to those risks, just like everybody else. If we sell our shares, to another investor who may or may not care about these things, might be a short-term investor, might be shorting, might be a day trader, who knows? They're not a long-term owner who really cares about getting climate change addressed properly. But transferring our shares, 
isn't going to make any difference to rising uh, temperature, global temperatures, and we're going to still be exposed to the risk. So for us, it's a question not of, uh, you know, wash your hands and walk away. It's roll up your sleeves and get in on some pretty, um, pretty tough and difficult situations so that we can protect ourselves from both this physical risk uh, and the transition risk as well. So now let's turn to um, how you roll up your sleeves and um, how you, uh, you know, use your leverage uh, and your engagement to uh, effect change at companies. And, and I wanted to start with, uh, you know, the very impactful um, investor coalition, Climate Action 100 Plus. Can you, can you tell us what prompted that coalition, how it came together, and then we'll, we'll go uh, through its, some of its recent work? Yeah, no, I'd be glad to. So <clears throat> the Paris Agreement uh, was, was signed off in December 2015. Um, right in the run-up to that, the PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment, which CalPERS has supported from the beginning and is a founding signatory, issued a challenge to investors and said, look, if you're going to turn up in Paris and be part of these negotiations in the finance track, then you need to know where emissions are in your portfolio. So they issued a challenge called the Montreal Pledge, which was for investors to sign up to do a carbon footprint initially on their global equity portfolio, which is typically publicly listed companies, which for CalPERS is about half of our portfolio. And we've since done a carbon footprint across all the other asset classes as well, which we can come back to. But what we found out from that by looking at where, where were the emissions coming from? Where, you know, where does, where does global warming show up in your portfolio is the question. Um, this, this data analysis was a very big project and it was led by Divya Mankikar uh, in the investment office. And what, what she did through um, a range of modeling and data collection estimation, guesstimation at times, we actually discovered that in the 10,000 holdings in companies, about 100 companies were responsible for the majority of the emissions. Now think about that, 10,000 companies and the majority of the emissions come from just 100. So what we realized having done this carbon footprint, which turned out to be such a useful project, was that if this is true for CalPERS, it's probably true for other investors as well. You know, CalPERS is very big, but, you know, we're, we're, we're broadly invested in, across global markets. So what we did was call a meeting which was hosted by the French ambassador to the United Nations, formerly the French ambassador to the United States, Francois de Latre, and his partner, Sophie Lelia. And they hosted a series of meet, private meetings for us, breakfast, delicious French breakfast, I can say, croissants, <laughs> and just the, the coffee you always wish you could have every morning. They were so hospitable. But what we did was invite uh, a dozen or more of uh, the biggest investors who we work with regularly and some of the investor networks who were trying to, you know, crack the code on what to do about climate change for investors. And over that series of um, meetings, we agreed, well, actually, if we look at our portfolios and we look at this carbon footprint that Calpers had done, yes, 
it looks pretty similar for everybody. So what we did was said, well, okay, next question. Uh, how about if we team up? One reason we all find it so difficult as investors to tackle climate change is because we've diversified. That means you don't have all your eggs in one basket. You have many, many, many baskets. But along the way, it means that you, uh, you can't run away, you can't diversify the climate change risk, you can't diversify out of it. But what you are left with is a tiny little piece of everything, which makes it very hard to have influence. So that's known as a, um, a tragedy of the commons. In other words, we all rely on the climate and everything around the natural ecosystem to function. It's an assumption and a presumption by all companies and all communities that there'll be air to breathe and water to drink and so forth. Climate change is threatening all of this for many, for many of the most vulnerable communities. So if we want to tackle something, we have to come together. So first of all, we said, okay, well, if we do come together, we've identified these hundred companies and the plus in the name Climate Action 100 Plus, the plus comes from some regional uh, companies where members in the in the financial community said, look, it's all very well saying, you know, these are the global systemically important carbon emitters, as we nicknamed them. Uh, we've also got com uh, companies in emerging markets and we've also got companies in regions. And if they don't come in line with Paris, so we, it, it, it's all not going to work. So the plus list was put together uh, through the investors around the world who said, we've got to tackle this, we've got to tackle that. So Climate Action 100 Plus is the 100 biggest emitters of greenhouse gases. And it's interesting if you look at the range, it's not just fossil fuel companies, because what we decided is we weren't just going to look at scope one, you know, what happens when, say, an oil company is drilling for oil, or scope two, what about the electricity that's being used when the oil's being refined? We also included scope three. That means whenever people go and buy gas or petrol or something from an oil company and use that up, whether it's in a, uh, you know, heating their home or running their car, we decided we had to count those emissions as well. And with that approach, what you find along that range of companies, yes, you do have energy companies, oil, gas, utilities, but you've also got cement manufacturers, steel companies, and even companies with a very long global agricultural chain. We have Nestle on the list, we have Pepsi, Cola on the list, which you maybe wouldn't think, which is another reason why just selling your shares in fossil fuel companies won't get the change. It won't get the change that we need. The next part of it, having agreed on the, the list of companies, well, what do we want them to do? And we went um, into some, you know, extensive discussion and debate about this. Is okay, never ask for more than three things because it's either going to feel like too much or people lose interest halfway through. But what are the three things that every single company should be doing? By sector, we know some specific things are going to have to happen and come to that. You know, what Pepsi-Cola does has got to look different to what, you know, Heidelberg Cement might be doing in Germany. So what we decided was there were three things that all companies uh, with this volume of emissions that was so critical to meeting the Paris goals would have to do. Number one, we needed to be able to hold their boards of directors accountable so it has to become a board issue. That was number one. We said board governance. And that includes things not just about the board 
taking responsibility, building a strategy for the transition uh, in line with the Paris Goals. It also picks up issues like political lobbying. Think about this. There are companies using shareholder money to go and lobby against regulations and policies which are um, intended to roll back the Paris Agreement. I mean, extraordinary as though it is, but that happens. Um, it also matters that the board puts compensation bonuses uh, in place so that the senior people, or everyone in the company, is being rewarded for achieving the Paris Goals. If you set a target, say, for a chief executive in an oil company, that he or she, occasionally she, gets rewarded for increasing fossil fuel reserves, um, that's actually the wrong measure. You actually want to be rewarding um, your chief executive for building a strategy that's sustainable in line with Paris. And those measures will look very different. So that's number one. Number two, we said, it's pretty simple, but also very hard. You have to set a target. And the target we want is that your business, whether it's cement or it's fizzy drinks, we want your business to be able to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. And um, we then are going to benchmark you between now and then over um, the, the period of time each in five-year chunks for what needs to happen in terms of strategy development, capex, you know, capital and allocation investment, uh, and all the various business changes. Okay, so that's number one, board governance. Number two, set that target. Number three, tell us all about it, it's disclosure. And then we're back to the great work of the TCFD, which provides this rather nice framework for companies. And we've been working very hard on that to get that, um, we, we and others think that that framework needs to be integrated into uh, mandatory financial reporting by companies. Now that's another story. So we, we had these three things we would ask these systemically important carbon emitters. And just to give you a sense of the scale, Amelia, these hundred companies, just on scopes one and two, so remember this is the mini version of emissions, what they do and the energy to you know, make their products, if you thought about these as a country, you would have China as the biggest source of emissions globally, then you'd have the United States, then you'd have these 100 companies. 100 companies are the third um, biggest source of emissions after China and the United States. So the good news is, yeah, so the scale of this is not to be, you know, it's not for the faint-hearted and the weak need. This is, this is actually tough stuff. But anyway, the, the next part of the story is, okay, well, call to action. We launched the idea at the PRI in Berlin uh, in 2017 and um, asked for people to sign up, said, we've got this idea. We have these 100-plus companies. Here are the three things each one of them needs to do. And we'll have an arrangement whereby we can overcome our tragedy of the commons by dividing up the work. We'll have lead investors who take these three things forward, but then stay in communication with the rest so that we can then, as needed, bring influence, we can request, we can require, we can move things along. So when we launched this whole thing, to coin probably entirely the wrong term, but it was a wildfire, that when we launched just six weeks later, we had um, uh, about $27 trillion signed up, which I think was just 
the fastest sign up to get a job done <laughs> I've ever seen in finance. So here we are a couple of years later, we've got $47 trillion signed up and we've got companies being engaged from as far afield as the United States, Canada, Europe, uh, China, Japan, India, Indonesia, um, and very wonderfully supported by um, investing networks in each region. So Ceres in the United States, um, their sister organization in Europe, um, Australasia, and also in Asia. And on the global picture, uh, PRI picking up a lot of very important work and being the global network. So it's enabled us to to um, really support these networks. We've um, you know we've done fundraising, we've appointed staff. I think we have we've now got staff on the ground supporting investors in each of these regions, uh, bringing you know significant amounts of new research, technical assistance, and so forth. So. Um, no surprise, but this stuff seems to get results. Okay, so that's um, uh, incredible in terms of you know how quickly Climate Action One Hundred was able to have uh, companies uh, commit. Um, I, I'd like to highlight some of the successes. Um, so, can you tell us a bit about Royal Dutch Shell because that certainly got a lot of press. Um, and I want to I want to get a, a sense of you know, what did that look like from Climate Action 100's perspective in terms of the engagement process? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the way that we're organized is um, each of the signatories volunteers to be the lead investor at a particular company. So for example, Calpers is the lead investor at um, 20, uh, or co-lead where we work with someone else uh, at just over 20 companies. Um, Shell, the lead investors were Rubico, a Dutch fund manager, and the Church of England pension scheme. Um, and, and, and something we've wanted to foster throughout this initiative is that we can team up uh, local investors, local, locals who speak the language, know the law, have the relationship. And one of the, uh, you know, one of the criteria for being chosen as a lead investor is that you've got a history of engagement. In other words, you can show you can stay the course. Um, you can go deep and long, broad, deep on these issues. Um, and, you know, all credit to the wonderful work done by, uh, by those two leads. Shell was important, uh, I, I think, for two reasons. First of all, they're obviously an absolutely enormous oil and gas company. Um, but also, the important thing about Shell is they were willing to... Um, accept responsibility for the emissions which come right through the value chain in their business. So scope one and scope two, I, I think companies generally have accepted scope one, okay, that's all the emissions that come out of the day job of doing whatever we do. And scope two, it might be a stretch, but yeah, when we, when we use electricity, if it's coming from a coal-fired plant somewhere, then that's pretty dirty stuff in terms of emissions. So yeah, we have to take responsibility for where we buy, where we source our electricity. Scope three, for some, has been a real stretch. But I think Shell, uh, Shell committed to including scope three in its plans to make reductions in emissions. So that was incredibly important. So that's number one. 
The second thing that Shell has done, which really matters, is um, Ben Van Buren, the you know the chief executive, has uh, set out this vision, basically saying there's no future for Shell unless all of Shell's industrial and business customers move to clean energy. In other words, you know, there's no way you get turkeys voting for Christmas. You know, companies can't just decide to vote themselves out of business. Say, oh, well, we'll just stop. We'll just wind up and go home. That, you know, there is a wind down scenario for some sectors. But at the moment, you know, the vast bulk of the world's economy is running on fossil fuels. And the issue is how to make this transition back to that word, hey? Um, and so what Shell has challenged all of us on is saying this has got to be we've got to look at the linkages between different sectors and the demand for fossil fuels has got to be transformed in order for that industry to make the transition so in other words we've got to walk and chew gum we've got to as investors think about ah what's happening with automobiles what's happening with utilities as well as you know, the, the demand side on energy as well as the supply side. Because if we don't create these new markets, if we don't foster innovation and new technology, um, that, that transition just won't happen. Um, so, you know, Shell deserves credit on both of, on both of those points. Uh, what's now happened is uh, we have a, a growing number of other fossil fuel companies making, um, making the same commitment, uh, Repsol, big Spanish oil company, BP. Uh, we've also been pushing companies and uh, investors generally have been pushing companies to rethink their financials in the light of these transition targets. So you'll have seen that BP, all credit to their audit committee, all credit to their auditors, actually wrote down something like $18 billion dollars. Uh, as an impairment charge. So if you start thinking you've got all this, you know, all this, uh, for any company, you think we have these assets, but if nobody wants to buy them or if selling them is going to contribute to this, you know, environmental catastrophe, you've really got to rethink what those assets really are worth. And this is why the accountants actually will um, play a huge part in helping the financial sector be aligned and sustainable because accountants and auditors are the ones who say, what's this really worth? What's the valuation? What's the, what's the, the, the contingent liability? Uh, what is the impairment if, uh, if climate change uh, catastrophe becomes ever more likely? And then we're expecting policy and regulatory and other responses, which, you know, which could throw all sorts of companies into, uh, into, some, uh, into some chaos. But we've also got, you know, the biggest, you know, fourth biggest cement company in the world, Heidelberg Cement. We've got the largest shipping company in the world, Melamersk. Uh, we've got our first companies in India signing on, uh, India Oil and Gas. Um, so, you know, and we also in the United States, where it's not been the most uh, popular topic in some quarters, climate change um, isn't, isn't viewed as a given in all circles. Uh, but I would point to the fact that we have got the biggest utilities in the United States have agreed to sign up for this. So Duke Energy, AES, Excel. And this really matters because these uh, big utilities 
buy the fossil fuels, the coal, the oil, to produce the electricity and the lighting when you plug in your electric car. Uh -huh, we all know that. But, you know, the point is these big purchases of fossil fuel are moving over to renewables and by investors coming to the door and saying, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So we want to see the numbers. We want to see the board taking responsibility. We want to see targets and we want to see disclosure. And, you know, the, and live in a world of consequences. So I, I think it was very interesting, you know, this proxy season that uh, a big, you know, the biggest oil company uh, in the United States, Exxon, which has produced, you know, scope one, scope two reporting, but won't, won't grapple with scope three, which is really where most of the emissions are. Um, you know, there were votes against directors at Exxon, not just CalPERS voting against directors, but some big investors like BlackRock, which is the world's biggest fund manager. You know, so all, all credit to uh, Michelle Edkins and Larry Fink, um, you know, because, uh, you know, big, a big investor like BlackRock deciding we live in a world of consequences and we need to hold boards accountable for what they are and what they aren't doing. Um, and that's really uh, where I think we'll, we'll, we'll start to see um, what is it? it? It will concentrate minds wonderfully as directors see investors able to cast votes, which will determine whether or not they're able to come and serve for another term on that board. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, with respect to Shell, was uh, did that happen with Shell, where there was a you know an actual vote against directors or a threat, or was it or was it a multi-year engagement process, sort of ratcheting up the pressure? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, everything on engagement starts with um, a polite letter saying, "Please, can we talk to you about this?" <laughs> Hopefully, step two, if you have that conversation back in the good, you know, back back in as it was a year ago, um, often in person meetings. And typically, we like to meet with board members or senior management because obviously that's important for something as big as a climate change discussion. Shell over the years has also had uh, share owner proposals which have come forwards. And what's interesting that what Shell did and also BP did this as well is when the you know Climate Action 100 plus signatories put forward a proposal saying, well, look, we have asked you to do this. We've done it quietly behind the scenes in a meeting. Now it's time to say, look, uh, we need we need more uh, more doing, and it needs and it's urgent. So a share owner proposal is basically where one shareholder is talking to the others. We think this needs to happen uh, on climate change. Um, what, what Shell did and, and BP did as well is they decided that they wouldn't oppose the proposal. I mean, this is, this is almost unheard of. But the, you know, the management uh, of, of BP and Shell, they said, well, actually, we agree with you. And if shareholders get behind us and get behind this transition that we've got to make, then we, we can actually work in partnership. And this is very different from what we've seen with some other companies, Exxon is an example, of going to the SEC to try to remove uh, or, or to be given permission, if you like, that they won't be sued if they refuse to even include the share owner proposal on the ballot. So I, I think this is probably one reason at Exxon why um, some investors decided, I'm sorry, we, we, we haven't got the proposal on the ballot that we want, that we wanted to see. Um, we don't see the progress 
that we need to see in terms of climate change transition strategy. So the next vote is actually on the board, it's on the directors. And remember, until a few years ago, in most big United States companies, you couldn't vote on board members. You know, shareholders have had to go door to door uh, with companies to win the right to vote on the board. Well, that's not quite fair. The vote that was allowed uh, is a vote yes. But of course, it's not an election if you can only vote yes. <laughs> you have a proxy card and it says, do you vote for this board of directors? Yes, or don't vote. So that's not that's not accountability in action. So the you know the the fantastic work over years that have been done by U.S. investors, New York State, New York City, Calsters, Calsters, and many others has really um, driven the adoption of what's called majority voting. And we won that um, at Exxon a few years back, uh, which actually now makes it possible for investors to um, to, to you know really. Uh, not just, um, as I say, request, but I think ultimately require that these issues are addressed to the to the satisfaction of the investors. Yeah, thank you for reminding us of that, uh, Anne. It's amazing how quickly we forget that that ability to not only request, as you say, but require is, you know, is, is new and was hard fought. So for the benefit of the issuers uh, in our audience, I wanted to uh, have you talk about sort of the top three things that companies should not do when they're engaging with you on climate change risk. <laughs> so they should not do. Um, say one thing and do another. I guess that's that's uh, um, procrastinate. In other words, we'll do this, but not now. Uh, and you know, the day the day will come, but wait. And thirdly, put up. We're not sure how to do it as an excuse. You know, so necessity is the mother of invention. And I applaud. Um, you know, the, the, you know, we've we've seen this with um, a number of companies where they've made the commitment. Um, you know, actually, the outgoing chief executive of BP, Bob Dudley, said, I I'm just don't know how we can get this done. And I'm not sure that we will get it done. And, you know, did the new chief exec came in and said, I don't know how we're going to get it done either. But we have to get it done. And that is the whole idea, really, you know, in that phrase, the moonshot. You know, Kennedy says America has to get to the moon. NASA and everyone hasn't got a clue how to do that. But the point is now, necessity is the mother of invention. Until we deploy the ideas, the innovation, uh, the money onto this, and also there's a lot for everybody to do. It's not just for companies. Companies are responding to wider society. So what we eat, how we travel, what we wear, what we expect of companies as their customers, what we expect of our regulators and our policymakers as citizens, and, and what, as investors, we expect of our fund managers and our pension funds and our 401ks. All of these things come together. Um, so everybody has something to do. But, yeah, I think those would be my top three um, best avoided, best avoided. So that is very sound advice. I'd like to now turn to just a couple of examples, uh, case studies of companies that have managed climate change risk well. Yeah, we have um, in Climate Action 100 Plus in that cohort of the biggest emitters in the world, we have now got 50 
five zero companies which have agreed to hit that net zero emissions by 2050. And information about these companies is on the website. So anybody who's interested in looking at this, uh, there's, there's more there um, for you to see. Uh, but the thing is that what you have to do if you're a utility making a transition from coal and oil and gas into renewables as your feedstock energy for producing electricity can be very different to what you need to do if you're um, a cement company or if you're um, uh, an automobile manufacturer. So I would just say hats off, take a bow and thank you to those 50 companies which range from you know, Pepsi to Nestle to BP to Shell to Duke Energy in North Carolina and back again. This range of companies has made the commitment and that means that they're um, starting to align their capex. You know, so I'm sorry, this, this might look like a painful thing if I was going to say somebody's doing a really good job. BP's just written down $18 billion. So that, um, you'll see this with other companies. So the first thing is, you know, the, the, you know, the reality has to hit about the financials. So companies that are taking impairment charges and doing write-downs and um, really integrating this issue of climate risk into their financials, they're the ones that deserve the credit because they're doing the painful thing. It's not people committing to doing things which, um, might be easier or more immediate. Um, and, and these companies, these 50 companies that have made this commitment are now developing their transition plans, which are, well, what has to happen over the next five years, the next 10, the next 15? Because it's not going to happen in a straight line coming from being uh, a very large carbon emitter to where you need to be at 2050. It's going to happen in stages. So um, I think all of these come, and some of these are not uh, consumer companies. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're companies that people don't think about. I mean, you know, when you get your whatever it might be from a company, uh, an online company named after a rainforest and warrior mythical women, I leave it to your imagination. When that comes, guess what? It comes to you on a ship. Most of that stuff is that's manufactured in other places. If it's coming to the United States, you're going to find that shipping companies are one of the biggest parts of the emissions, which take your whatever it might be from one country over an ocean and into the market and delivered to your doorstep. So you might be thinking that the company that's delivering the product to you is where you need to be thinking about uh, emissions, but it's, we've got to really start getting right down into um, supply supply chains and supply lines. So, you know, when Muller Maersk, the world's biggest shipping company, container company, signed on to net zero 2050, it's not because they've got angry customers or uh, employees protesting about what they do. I think it's because, you know, the Danish company, they've got uh, a government that's very attentive to these issues. And at the end of the day, the company that's been listening to their shareholders. So all credit to them. So 
sadly, all good things must come to an end. Um, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion, but I, I always like to end the ESG beat by giving our guests uh, parting gifts, a magic wand and a crystal ball. So let's, let's start with the magic wand. Uh, and, and Anna, I actually wish I could give you a magic wand. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but if I could, uh, what would you do uh, what to encourage companies to oversee climate change risk more effectively? Right. So, um, so I've got my fairy godmother imaginary wand in, in my in my hand right here. This imaginary wand. I would say carbon pricing uh, because the the it, it, it's sort of a, a form of pollution at every stage of everybody's daily life, which is not counted and it's not priced. So I would say carbon pricing is the one thing, if I could wave a magic wand and bring it in, that would actually make a really big difference to the price of everything. You know, this is like uh, what's Oscar Wilde's definition of a cynic, someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Well, right now, we don't even know the price of what we're doing. Uh, on this climate catastrophe that's coming our way. So we've got to put a price on it because that's the only way that you're going to start changing the behavior of people who move money around um, and companies borrowing money, investing money uh, and so forth. At the moment, carbon gets a free ride and that's a real problem. I couldn't agree with you more and I'm so happy that you uh, ended with the Oscar Wilde quote. Um, so, so now on to the crystal ball. Where do you see us headed? In? Ah, ah. Um, mm. I think that uh, I'm an optimist. I hope that's the, the well-informed pessimist, just to flip that round a bit. Um, I'm optimistic that the, that the targets can be made, you know, can be hit. Um, not least because the sources of emissions are so concentrated, certainly in the industrial sector, these hundred companies, um, it cannot be beyond all of us to get this sorted out. Uh, but, but, but it isn't going to be a smooth ride. I would say buckle up. This is going to be, um, uh, it, it, it's going to be a transition with far more volatility, suffering, um, and human impact than is necessary. And sadly, that's because, um, you know, although we've got a global um, environmental system, we don't have global government. We have nation states and we don't have coordinated international regulation and standards. And we've got to accept that's just how it is. But what that means is this could be an ugly, messy, painful transition. And everything I think that we're talking about um, on this on, you know, on this conversation and, and elsewhere is how do we make sure we get there, but with the least damage um, to, to communities, to people's lives, uh, and a lot of avoidable suffering. Um, you know, that, that to me, it's, uh, I genuinely think we'll get there, but I, I fear for the lack of attention uh, to issues like the just transition, you know, like what happens to workers, what happens to communities as these uh, as these industries transform, that has to be at the heart. That has to be at the heart of the discussion. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for taking uh, your time to be with us today and for sharing your insights. It's been so joyous as always, uh, and I'm deeply grateful.
Well, Amelia, thank you so much for keeping all of this important discussion going on. We all learn from you, and it's just such a um, such a pleasure always to join you in a in a conversation. Thank you. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.